On Aviation Podcast. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the On Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Orlando Spencer, and with me, as usual, is my co-host, Daniel Nzioka. And today, we want to talk about is inflation and real income slash earnings. But before we get started, let me turn it over to Daniel here for some preamble as to what we're going to be discussing today. Daniel? Thank you, Orlando. So yeah, we we looked into inflation last week, and this week we're going to look further into um, understanding what traditional inflation is. Um, so basically, I think uh, the simplest way to put it, it's a process of continuously rising prices and falling purchases pa- uh, purchasing power. So to find inflation, people used to multiply how much each um, item's price changed by its share of spending before the change. Then they added up those changes for all items. That way you'd basically get a better understanding of uh, how much purchasing power you had last year and compare it to this year or a couple of years ago. Um, so we're going to be looking into that and we're also going to be looking into uh, real income and basically understanding how people can uh, try compensate uh, for that as well. And that's really beautiful there. You talk about how to kind of calculate inflation in terms of how it affects prices, right? So let's get right into there and do a revision of what inflation is. And a traditional definition of inflation is a rise in the money supply. So the what, what Daniel <clears throat> explained earlier is really the effects, right? And how you calculate that, effects in, that effect in terms of how it affects your pocketbook, how it affects your purse, right? And so over time, you can make those calculations. And that's really, really good. What you want to understand and remember in any event is that if you see an increase in the money supply, you can expect inflation. And inflation will find its way into many different things. For example, one of the key places inflation finds itself during an expansion of the money supply is the price of houses. Right. The 2008 crisis was a because part because of you know subprime borrowing, but it's because of housing prices, the housing bubble. All right. So it finds its way into housing between 2003, between 2003 to 2005, I believe, where the bubble was really hot. And so uh, it finds its way into prices first and then it, not prices. Rather, it finds its way into houses then and then eventually that bursting causes a, a crisis. Or it can find a way into financial assets, which some people believe that houses are financial assets. That's a different topic for another time. But it can find a way into financial assets, such as stocks and bonds. Uh, for example, in the, in 2000, with the 2000 uh, tech bubble and that crisis was because of a stock market bubble, the dot-com bubble, and all that good stuff. So it found a way into, into, into assets because of the increased money supply. Now we saw the same thing throughout... 2020 and the massive amount of money injection into the market, we find that the tech stocks and benefit a lot from that. And so that's inflation. That exorbitant increase in the prices of those assets, that's inflation. And as we said last time, inflation will work its way back to goods and services because people do not buy asset and invest just to invest primarily it's so that they can consume later 
generally. And so it will find its way back into consumption goods and so on. And there are other effects that we can talk about, but we'll discuss those in another podcast. What we want to get into now is kind of get into what real income is, because that's really the, the meat and potatoes of this of this podcast. What is real income? Before I get on there, Daniel, any thoughts on any any additional thoughts on inflation? No, I think you put it pretty much clearly. Um, I don't have any additional thoughts to that. All right. Thank you, Danny. So real income. Now, whenever you see in financial terms, you see the word real in front of anything, it generally means accounting for inflation or accounting for some negative effect, right? For example, real GDP, real GDP is accounting for the GDP deflator, which is some components of inflation of the CPI, right? And so the either some or all the components of the CPI, but generally some components of the CPI, I think they strip out some stuff before they use the GDP deflator. So they'll say the economy grew by 5%, but then they use a deflator, which is some component of the, of the CPI, of say 2%, and so real GDP is 3%. Now, when you think of earnings, you want to think of earnings as, yes, I got a raise this year of 4%. Wow, fanciful, great. But what is the year-to-year, you can say year-to-year, but year-to-year inflation is just a measure of what inflation is today as opposed to what it was a year ago this day. Right, that comparison, and so that's year to year. But what is inflation been cumulatively throughout the year? Right, so you make a calculation. If they say inflation in March was X, and inflation in or throughout the months actually, so you say throughout the twelve months, inflation was a certain amount. You add that all up. What is the inflation throughout the year? And remember, inflation is cumulative. So if you have one percent in January and one percent every month, then inflation for the entire year arise in arise in, well, the effects of inflation, right? Let's use those terminologies. The effects of inflation in the in the economy, meaning a rising price of, of goods and services, is 12%. So say, for example, you got a 6% raise and inflation for the year in terms of the rise in price of goods and services is 12%. You got a pay cut in real terms of 6%. So therefore, your real income declined by 6%, even though you got a pay raise. And that's what real income is. Real income is your income, wages, or earnings corrected for inflation in the same period. So again, 6% pay raise, inflation throughout the year was a cumulative 12%. You just got a pay cut of 6%. So your real income declined by 6%. And that's one of the most important things people need to understand about real income and how to calculate that stuff. And that's why it's important to pay attention to what's going on with the measure we currently use. Whatever country you are, the CPI, if you're in Europe, wherever, and the US is a CPI, Consumer Price Index, use that measure to somewhat get a sense of what your real income is. Always subtract that, right? Now, the, the, the converse is true. For example, if you get a pay raise of 6%, but there was deflation, and deflation here mean a reduction in the money supply relative to goods and services. This means that the money supply may stay stable. They didn't change the money supply, 
and goods and services in the market increased, meaning there's a deflation, meaning that you can you can get more for the dollar spent. It means so if there is a deflation of 2%, you got a pay raise of 6%. You just got a pay raise in real terms of 8%. Right? If you didn't get a pay raise, but deflation is 2%, you just got a pay raise in real terms of 2%. And so that's how you look at real income, real earnings, and uh, real income, real earnings, and real wages. Right. So that's how you look at it. But before we move on, Danny, what are your thoughts on real income so far? Yeah, I think it's 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 uh, it's quite uh, something for the individual to grasp, uh, whereby they have to sort of understand uh, what the real income is. Um, so they have to first account for the inflation. But sometimes they may get a raise and it may seem like they're already accounting for inflation. So what would you advise? for someone to do to calculate their real income. So your question was sometimes they get a raise and it seems as if they're accounted for inflation. Was that the question? Was yes. that part of it? Yes. So yes. in any event, if you get a raise, it's not accounting for inflation, meaning your, your employer may say, okay, inflation is going up, right? Inflation is rising, the rate is rising, the rate of increase is rising or whatever. Um, there's, uh, let, me, let me just preface this by saying there's a difference between inflation rising and the rate of increase rising. So, for example, if year, let's use the year over year, year over year number. If year over year inflation is 5% this year, last year was 5%, this year it was 5%, inflation is still rising. It has not come down. Even if it goes to 4%, it is still rising. Okay, the rate of increase, if it's 5% last year and 5% this year, then the rate of increase has not changed. It has remained stable in terms of its rate of increase. However, the inflation is still rising. So please, folks, ignore when you hear people say inflation last year was 8%, this year it's 6%, inflation is coming down. It is not. The rate of increase is slowing. But it still increased from 8% last year, and it increased again this year by another 6%. Remember, we said it's cumulative. Now, let's talk a little bit more about that question about really, are your employers accounting for inflation? On their end, they are in terms of goods, and, you know, cost of goods and services, um, cost of producers' goods. And in a sense, they are trying to account for inflation in that regard by paying for the goods and services, and then asking for an increase on the consumer side. Yes, they, there are influences that would influence the employer to increase wages during an inflationary uh, moment in the economy. One, the competition is increasing pay or people are clamoring, the labor unions are clamoring for pay. But this does not mean that the employer is accounting for inflation for you. No, they're not necessarily doing that, right? If they have the money, some may say, okay, inflation is 10%. We're going to give you a 12% raise, right? Okay, fine, right? They give, they pay you above inflation. So your real income is going to be 2%. They just gave you a 2% raise in real terms, right? But generally, they look at what things are. They look at what they can do. They calculate their cost and see what cost they can absorb, additional cost they can take on, rather, 
and probably give you a raise based on that. And generally, and based on the numbers these days, generally that's below the rate of inflation. Okay? And so uh, it's not necessarily accounted for when you get a pay raise, right? So you need to do that calculation mm -hmm. to see if you are actually having real income. Because as it stands right now, real income are incomes are declining, real wages are declining, and they've been declining for the last two plus years, right? Our last article yeah, uh, yesterday talked about that. Well, yesterday's article talked about that. This week's article, full article talked about that, about real income. So to answer that question, Danny, I don't believe that in the general, in the general, mm -hmm. companies are actually accounting for inflation when they give you a pay raise. They accept that there needs to be greater, more income on your part, and they expect accept that as a cost on their end, but that is calculated primarily based on what they can bear, not necessarily getting you to have a raise that is above inflation and give you a real raise, so to speak, right? So I hope that can answer the question there. Yeah, that definitely did. I know we were going to touch a little bit on um, inflation businesses and how they can handle um, uh, the uh, the rising inflation or the actual, um, the real inflation. But I did want to touch on also um, how individuals should compensate uh, for this. So right, they, they can make sure first they're getting the right income. Uh, but secondly, they can also try to make sure that they're spending in the right way, like making sure they're buying things in bulk or couponing, finding ways to save. They could also watch out for any loans or mortgages they take out because uh, things change in terms of interest rates. And they might be uh, there might be a better time to take a loan later as opposed to taking it immediately. Um, so is there any advice you can give individuals um, in addition to making sure they have um their real income updated yeah definitely definitely but before i even get there let me double back a little bit on um how inflation affect real income or real earnings right obviously mm -hmm. cost of living you kind of touch on that in terms of how to deal with that but before we get to dealing with that let's talk a little bit more about the cost of living right inflation affects the cost of living based on the same things we talked about if your income is rising uh, in real term, negative, your, in, your income is negative, it's declining in real term, let's say that. In real term, your income is negative. It means that you're going to have a much harder time paying for goods and services, okay? So therefore, the standard of living, because the standard of living is based on how well you can procure the necessities of, of life, and the better you can, the more you can move to higher order goods and services and premium goods and services. And if you can do that really premium goods and services relatively easy, your standard of living is good. But if you can't buy beef and buy chicken, right, and you can't buy, you know, premium chicken, um, wild chicken that grows freely in the yard, whatever they do, or you can only buy the little red bag with the thighs in there, the thighs only from Tyson or whoever makes them, right? Then if that's the only thing you can buy, it's not by choice, you just buy that because it's the only thing you can afford, your standard of living is going down. So that's one of the main thing about inflation, it reduces your standard of living, right? Another thing to think about inflation on earnings generally, right? Generally, as we talked about earlier, generally earnings decrease with inflation if earnings are not at least equal to or above the rate of inflation, right? So if you buy government bonds, for example, so you buy municipal bonds, government bonds, wherever you buy bonds, you say that it, it earnings on investment and it's paying 4%, but inflation is 6%, you're still losing money, 
right? You may not be losing it as fast if you just had the money in the bank, but you're still losing money. You're losing 2%, okay? And so that's how to think about that as well in, a, in general term. What we want to talk about here real quick, though, is are those folks who are on fixed income. My goodness, friends, if, you, if you're on fixed income, you're devastated because think about what's happening. People who are on fixed income, they get, say, for example, they, they retire or they have an annuity. The annuity is fixed. There is no increasing that. Maybe with Social Security payouts, with Social Security, you get COLA adjustments, um, veterans with on veteran disability stuff and stuff like that. They probably get COLA, uh, they get COLA adjustments as well. But if you're on fixed income, like an annuity or retirement plan, that's just an annuity, you are getting wiped out because every year you're purchasing for your real earnings, your real income, your real fixed income goes down. So, for example, if I think if my memory serves me correctly, since I think 2019, 2020 until now, I think, you know, the cumulative inflation was about 40 percent. I think something like that number, 30 something, 40 percent. Think about that. You between that time till now, your annuity just lost 40 percent of its first purchasing power. You're struggling. And if this continues for another four, five, six, seven, eight, ten years, what's going to happen? So the folks on fixed income are struggling. And that's why we see a lot of folks. You, you might go to the store and see a lot of a lot of our our elders or respected elders getting back into the workforce. You see them at the grocery store. You see them because they're trying to compensate for the, the loss in purchasing power. So that's something we need to we need to, we need to talk about a little bit. Right. And with that said, we want to kind of touch before we even move on, uh, you know, answer that question again about how people should compensate. Look at what's happening with the layoffs. Right. I believe. I believe Gap uh, and some other folks just lift Gap and some other folks just lay off thousands of people again. This is like a third round of mass layoff. It's probably in the hundreds of thousands right now. And so layoffs are wild. Um, companies are shutting down. Walmart is shutting down stores in particular Oregon and other places, right? Uh, I believe Sacramento, maybe uh, Oakland, I believe. And so as well. And some other places, Target is closing stores. A lot of these stores are closing. You have Bed Bath & Beyond, which is with its challenges from 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 way back they're they're looking for chapter uh chapter 11 bankruptcy a whole bunch of stuff's happening and people are losing jobs so people are losing jobs okay inflation is high okay real income is falling this is gonna devastate the working class the middle class so that's really really important to think about think about stocks think about bonds we talked about a little bit the real income is falling because those things generally are not right now, currently are not keeping up with inflation. All right. And so you have to think through those things as you think about this. And one of the key things now is, yes, how do you compensate? How do you compensate for this stuff? How do you ensure that you can stay afloat? And I've always said this many times, guys, gals, Go out there and buy things that people want to buy. Okay, you don't smoke cigarettes. Who cares? If you live in a community where people smoke cigarettes, go buy a couple of packs. Go put them down. They last for a very long time. This is why they're currency in prisons. They pretty much last. They're valuable because they're addictive substance. I mean, we're not promoting smoking, but if you if someone is going to buy cigarettes, they're going to buy cigarettes. If you have cigarettes, buy some engine oil. Buy some car tires. Buy cars. Look at the cars around you and realize, okay, that Toyota Corolla, that Nissan, that Honda, they use this particular tire. I'm going to go buy some tire and put it in my garage. And I probably can sell it back to individuals, use it myself in the future, or sell it back to a tire shop. Okay? 
at least you maintain some 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 purchasing power, okay? Because the price of the tire has to rise with the, with, with the inflation, okay? Right? People buy gold and silver. People get into Bitcoin and so on. And I want to touch on Bitcoin real quick, even though I don't I don't have Bitcoin. I'm I'm, I'm not a fan. I'm not a, uh, a Bitcoin maximalist or someone who is interested in buying Bitcoin. But in the U.S., we see Bitcoin and the U.S. dollar price is going fluctuating. It goes up, it goes down, and you know, it kind of stable out right now between twenty and thirty thousand dollars, right, right around there. And for us, we're saying, oh, in the U.S., Bitcoin is is unstable. But take a country, say like Venezuela or maybe Costa Rica or some other country that are having problems with their own currency, or say Turkey, where they're having problems with their own currency and high inflation. To them, Bitcoin is very attractive. As much as it's fluctuating, as much as it may look, but for them, it's a lot more stable than their own currency. And so they can use Bitcoin as, as, a, as a way of maintaining some of their value. And so you still got to look at all these things. People go with gold, precious metals as well. Some people buy certain stocks that are all that are very good and get very stable. You know what the quote unquote blue chip stocks, value oriented stocks. People do those. We're not giving advice. We're not. We're not authorized to do so. We're not licensed to do give give financial advice. But we're just talking about things that people can do just to kind of answer that question in terms of what can you do to survive? And the regular lay person with a hundred dollars that they want to keep for the next six months that doesn't have a bunch of money, have a thousand dollars. Well, we know that the average American do not have a, a four hundred to a thousand dollars for emergency expense. But you say if you have five hundred dollars, you want to keep it for six months for emergency purposes. Okay, or you want to keep it over a year, trying to save, buy something that lasts. Buy engine oil, okay. Buy your fuel early and put it a little, put your little blue, your little red canister, safety canister, put it down. Buy some stuff, right? Buy stuff that are non-perishable, and that's how you can kind of go through. Danny, I hope I went, I went around about there to answer your question, but I hope I had a, had a chance to get you that answer in there. Absolutely, I think this is very, very uh, valuable information uh, for this audience. Appreciate that. Absolutely. You're welcome, my friend. And so uh, we want before we even move on. And I know, Daniel, you you, you want to jump into that that item about, you know, businesses, how businesses deal with this stuff. And so one of the key things here is that as we think through before we even get to the old business of business. Right. Well, business of the old business of business. Let's really talk a little bit about. Reminder of this, or our, our listeners here, that guys, whenever we talk here, we want you guys to relate this back to the aviation industry. Again, we do not operate in a bubble in the industry, and therefore, everything that happens in the, in the wider space will affect us. And in some cases, like we said last last week in our podcast, in some case, it affects us more because we're more sensitive. We're using that word now, sensitive to shocks, right? Even though we're resilient for many reasons, we get government support. Sometimes, we, you know, the companies are very competitive, so they tend to bounce back real fast. the The world needs, in a sense, our air travel for certain things, and so it's a little bit more resilient, but it's also very sensitive. And so the sensitivity can be brutal when it when 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 it gets sensitive to certain things. So we want to make sure you're thinking through. Everything that we're saying, right? I want to make sure you're thinking through everything that we're saying to make sure that we are actually doing the 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 and thinking about this stuff in the right way. And so the idea here is to ensure 
that we understand where we're operating and what this in, is in reference to. So, Danny, I know you want to discuss, you know, inflation and, and its effects on businesses, right? And so right. let's get into that. Now, with inflation and businesses, businesses are price makers, generally. If a competition is high, it's relative as to how much they can make prices. But they're generally price makers. Consumers are price takers, but that's relative based on how much power the consumer has to influence prices based on the need and the competition and so on. That being said, companies, as we talked about before, they tend, tend to try to absorb a lot of costs, especially if they're dealing with goods and services and they're operating in an a highly competitive environment. They try to absorb costs, and the reason why they want to absorb costs because they don't know what their competition is about to do, right? If they increase costs and they increase costs and then the competition does not, they may lose business. Now, take, for example, one of the most competitive and feast and famine segment in the aviation industry, flight school. Flight schools, I believe, are probably the toughest business in aviation. I know that airlines are tough as well, but flight schools are brutal, right? And so when prices rise, we see where flight schools try their very best not to have fuel, fuel surcharges so they can account for more of the business. While everyone is raising prices around them, they probably account for the business, but they try not to raise prices at first. But eventually they have to. They have to raise those prices, right? And so as they try to absorb prices and realize they reach to a threshold that they can't go beyond, they start raising those prices to recoup some of those costs. And we talked about this last time. Any business that tries to absorb costs initially, but inflation remains persistent, they tend to, okay, we're going to start charging for inflation now. And so first they would hold price down and then, then they realize, okay, inflation is not, okay, transitory as the terminology was being used, the word was being used. Then they start raising prices. And as they start raising prices, they start realizing, okay, we need to raise price. Number two, we need to raise prices. And then three, as they go forward and realize inflation is still persistent, they're going to be like, okay, first of all, we have to raise prices and we may, may even raise prices beyond what we need to compensate today because we made a bunch of loss last time. We need to recover for that. That may be a, may be a, a situation as well, right? So we've got to think about it that way. And we also want to think about a couple of things regarding inflation and business. And it's, it's two main things, profitability and accounting for assets. Right. And the first one is kind of straightforward. All right. We talked about it before the first one. And we will we'll dive into these things a little bit more in other podcasts. But as we go forward, we're going to gradually add on to these these concepts for a small business or in a, say a flight school or, or a part, you know, part 91, say a banner towing business or, or, or something like of the sort, a gliders kind of stuff, whatever you're running an operation and you make a million dollars in profit, but then all of a sudden, say it's a larger operation, you make $10 million in profit, and all of a sudden, uh, inflation went up by 10%. You went ahead and account for that and assess, assess prices and all that good stuff, and then you make uh, $11 million. So you normally make 10, you now make 11. You might erroneously believe that that extra $1 million is profit. It is not profit. It is mostly a part of your capital good, right? So if your profit used to be, say, 10%, your profit is now not going to be, you know, uh, from uh, 1 million to 2 million. Your profit is not now 20%. No, 
your profit is still 10%. You need to calculate 10% of your, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, of your, of your $11 million. So now you are at $1.1 million in terms of profit. Because if you ever consume that extra $1 million, you're consuming $900,000 off your capital to buy back the goods that you bought before that's, that has been increased. So, for example, you bought a set of service goods and service. you pay for a set of services to provide your services as, a, say, a flight school or any business for, the, for that matter. And it costs you, you know, based off you do your thing, it costs you, say, just to make the calculation simple, it costs you $9 million. When you all your costs, that's all it is, $9 million, you make $10 million, 10%. Okay, good, fine, great. Right? Now, this goods cost you $9 million. You make $11 million. You go, woohoo, we made $2 million. No, you did not, right? Because you're using all costs in an inflationary environment. And what that means is that even though you're using older costs, you paid $9 million before for your total input costs and all that good stuff. You made $11 million. Inflation has increased by 10%. So therefore, your new cost to actually uh, pay for the next set of goods and services, produces goods and services, produce the goods and services to your consumer is going to be roundabout, right, $9.9 million. So by going ahead and consuming that extra $1 million that you thought you made in profit, you're consuming 90% of that extra capital that you would need to repurchase the goods and services needed to produce, the, produce your your goods and services to your consumers and your customers, you're consuming a lot of that. And so you're going to end up with deep loss and probably can't even find that funds to compensate. You got to go back into uh, additional capital investment, loans and whatever. So that's the one thing that we need to think about as business. Business need to think about that, right? If you're running a little shop, if you're doing a little gig, if you whatever you're doing, even if you're an individual running a little gig, a side gig, you're doing some delivery, you're doing some carpentry work, you're doing some house cleaning, whatever you're doing, whatever your input costs are, if you buy at a lower cost and inflation went up the next time around, before you buy, you have to remember that prime. You may not actually be having a profit profit percentage increase, but just nominal value increase. And if you consume all of that nominal value increase, you're going to be consuming your capital. And remember, we talked about nominal value, meaning value in today's dollar term or today's currency term. Right. So that's one thing to think, think about in terms of profitability. I know that kind of went on and on there, but that's very, very important for us to think about. The next thing to think about, think about is actually not so simple. This one, that one seemed kind of complicated, which shouldn't be that complicated. Uh, but if it is, this one's a little bit more complicated. And we can talk about this in another podcast. I'm not going to dive into too much detail. Is the calculation of assets. A company who has to run depreciated costs. Now, if you have depreciated costs running, we wrote an article about this, I think, last year. If you have depreciated costs running, for example, if you have, say, an aircraft or a piece of asset, and you normally depreciate by 10%, Right. If you depreciate by 10 percent each year, straight line depreciation, just to make it simple, straight line depreciation accounting principle there. You depreciate by 10 percent each year. Inflation went up by 10 percent. How should you depreciate the asset? Right. Should you depreciate the asset more or less or should you depreciate asset based on when you bought the asset 
and not account for inflation today. Could you actually be depreciating asset asset too fast if you account for inflation or too slow? That's a tricky one. And that's something we want to visit because if we dive into this right now, it may take a long time, but we want to revisit that sometime in the future. We do have an article about that. Uh, we'll, we'll link that in the, sh in, in the show notes here that you guys can dive into that a little bit more, you know, how companies deal with inflation, you know, on the asset side of things. So you can always dive into that some more. But then, yeah, I wanted to touch on that for businesses because businesses really have a tough time dealing with regulation, dealing with taxes, employee, uh, reg um, being compliant with all these different things, plus how to deal with inflation, which adds an added complexity to the entire operation and it can get really tough and sometimes you have to have some sympathy on these folks that are running these business and they're not just greedy businesses trying to price gouge but once you understand maybe there are probably some of those out there right and we're not saying they're not but for the most part businesses are just trying to survive in the environment they find themselves so with that daniel would love to hear your thoughts any question on those uh, i don't have any questions on those but i do have I, I, I do see I, I do see something that i uh, wanted to talk about uh recently you know how airlines try to save money um using shrinking um seats on the plane so that they can try and get as much profit as they can um i saw senator uh katie porter trying to advocate for a bill that holds airline accountable in quotes um, for this. Well, first of all, I just wanted to say like um, airlines are not responsible for the inflation. They're trying to survive during this time. So I feel like uh, a lot of people do look at the airlines as just some sort of uh, public utility that uh, that the government uh, directly controls, but it's not. They're businesses like any other. And so when airlines try to um, uh, uh, save money, they're going to implement um, solutions to try and save money um, as much as possible. We saw Southwest uh, trying to use the point-to-point -point system for a very long time, even though they had a, uh, an old software. It's the main thing that kept them affordable for quite some time. And uh, we now see uh, airlines try to make sure that uh, they can um, have as many passengers as possible on board and try to keep the co the, the costs low. Um, if, if they had to keep seats at a probably big size, um, they probably would have the prices uh, go up to a point that price uh, that flying would be a luxury and you don't want to get to that. So um, yeah, that, that's my opinion, Orlando. I just wanted to share that. I want to hear your thoughts about that. That's very interesting because you know, I know that for airlines, uh, for a lot of airlines, not the budget fly carriers, but a lot of airlines, seats are in gradations based on the class that you find yourself, right? If you're, if you're a super economy or, you know, your seats are going to be tiny, right? Because you mm -hmm. still, they're trying to compensate for the cost of the tickets. And so remember, when you think about airlines, you got to talk about available seat miles, right? And available seat miles literally is defined by what is the cost of an airline for a seat if they move that seat 30,000 feet in the air and move it one mile. What does that cost? They're always trying to work that cost. And, and the profit on that cost generally is about uh, cents, cents, small amount of cents on the dollar. And so airlines are generally always running on these thin, very thin margins. So the first thing I would want to say about that is that the first thing is that seats are generally in gradations. Uh, I have not looked into it enough, so I can't comment on the actual reduction of seats. I just think that uh, people in America, and, and people can chastise me if they want for this, 
Americans are generally larger now than 10 years ago. We, 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 we either get a little, put on a little bit more survival weight or we get more muscles, right? This is, that's what I'm seeing generally. People are either in the gym getting more muscles or they're, they're getting more survival weight, right? And so that's what I'm seeing generally. And it may mean that these seats are actually not changing. It's the people that are maybe changing, right? Some airlines that are budget carriers, the regional carriers, their seat may be by definition smaller and they may be making them smaller. I haven't seen any evidence for that just yet. The problem is twofold. One, assuming that airline is a public good. No good is a public good. We decide what good is a public good by saying it's a public good. For example, would it be, wouldn't it be ridiculous to state that shoes are public good and that they need to be regulated? Because we need them to walk around as we hurt our feet constantly walking around the you know, hard surfaces. And so wouldn't it, wouldn't it be wise to say shoes are public good? But when you think about having shoes as a public good to tell who can and cannot make shoes and what size of shoes to be made, what the color should be and what the, the surface, uh, you know, the sole should be and what the upper area should be, it sounds ridiculous. So if you think about companies themselves, why should there be regulation as a seat size? It should be determined by the consumers. Now, a lot of folks a lot of folks with more survival weight, and I like to call it survival weight because in, in the wilderness, these people survive a lot longer, um, merely because they have those survival weight. A lot of folks with a survival weight, they're the one complaining about the seed size. Now, here's the thing. Are there enough of those people in the market to trigger the airlines to make that move? Okay? And that would be a market approach. Are there enough to trigger the airlines to make that move? And are they willing to pay the extra cost? Because having regulations on this impose will impose on in, inevitably extra costs on compliance, extra costs on you know equipment and all that good stuff. And then the entire industry pays for this. So are we willing to pay the extra cost? And if we are, then we don't need regulations. We don't need the government. The market just do it. Right. There's a reason why you buy the iPhone at fifteen hundred dollars. Because you're willing to pay the extra cost. Right. And so I don't believe the 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 the, the, the government should get involved in that. I think the market will decide whether or not they want bigger seats. Right. Because everyone a lot of people get uncomfortable uh, if you're a large say, say not just uh, someone with a more survival weight, but say you're a large male, you're two fifty. And it's primarily you're a very muscular person. You know, you work out a lot. These seats are tiny, right? And so, but for the average American, which range about 5'5 five, five to 5'8, five, uh, 160 pounds, these seats are perfect. And so when you think about it, it may not be, it may be a whole bunch of noise, but it's something that you can learn from in terms of what, what should be the solution. Should, be, should it be government dictating what we do, what do, get done in the market? We've seen that sometimes it doesn't work out very well. Or should it be where the market decided, yes, this is something we want and we're willing to pay for that extra. OK, uh, in, you know, because if the market are willing to pay for it, then there would be no need for anybody, anybody to come in and say it should be done. OK, so that's what I want to say about it. Again, twofold. One, airline is not a public good. It serves the public in, 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 in a very important way. It's not a public good. Right. And anything that's a public good is not economic, is not an economic good. For example, air, 
right? It's an economic good because it's not scarce, right? I don't want to get too much into economics here, but air isn't a public good. Air is not a good or an economic good because it's not scarce and it could be considered a public good, right? And so anything that has to be produced by, by somebody else with their resources, their money, it cannot be a public good because it, it wasn't produced by the public. And we can talk all day long about public and what that means. But what I would want to say is getting in, getting the government more involved in regulating what the seat size are will find that airlines, more airlines will go out of business, which means leave less airlines in the business, which means they would have to, they have the ability to raise prices even more. So it may just backfire and we can point to a lot of things that have happened that way. But I want to dive down into that. Yet. That's, that's getting a little bit too on that topic that we don't really touch on just yet. Right. So that's my thought, Danny. Um, you know, with that, though, uh, I want to talk a little bit now as we kind of wrap up here in terms of looking forward. All right. What can we expect? All right. Our viewpoint and my personal viewpoint is that inflation is here to stay. We've said that before because the underlying factors that causes a rise in price and goods and services, which is inflation and the increase in the money supply, are still there. Right now, you have some credit contraction. You have banks are not lending as much because we're heading into a recession. We've been calling a recession for a long time. We've been calling this thing for like a year and a half now. We've been calling the inflation problem for a long, for like two years now. We've been calling this thing for a while. And so we expect that there will be some contraction there, right? In terms of fiduciary media, which we talked about, money that bank creates out of, they say thin air, but banks create because they give you credit, all right? And so that money supply is kind of falling a little bit but in the same breath we see where other money supply is increasing a lot of these programs that we're running especially in this country in the united states are inflationary okay for example the inflation reduction act there's a lot of things in there that are inflationary there's a lot of spending okay a lot of spending we, we we're voting to increase the debt limit with for whatever side of your fence you're on on that point that's also inflationary because a lot of that funds is that we're going to have to create bonds and mainly maybe the federal reserve has to buy those bonds and then monetize those bonds and monetizing the bonds mean that if the federal reserve buy the bond they print the money to buy the bonds so new money enter the market so the government can spend it and that's just how that's how the government can spend those new money in the market and that's how monetization works so we expect that inflation is going to continue and individuals we talk a little bit about that already individuals need to be prepared for that okay you need to be prepared for that i know that there is a there is an inflation expectation spiral where for lack of a better term where people expect inflation so inflation come and that's what a lot of people think uh we, i'm not sure about that what i do know is that increasing the money supply causes inflation wherever the money supply comes from whether it's monetary policy or fiscal policy and increasing the money supply always bring an increase in goods and services over time and so companies should always be looking at individuals rather should always be looking at that companies should do the same okay and think about their producer prices and what it costs for the goods and services that goes into their products and services. And so that is going to be an important thing to look forward to. And we expect that inflation will remain elevated for the entire rest of this decade. And now it's some stuff, but it's what we believe, right? Based on what we're looking at. And so we expect it to be elevated throughout the rest of the decade. There will be some lull, there'll be some slowdown, there'll be some pullback, but the most of what we're seeing. Most of what we're seeing suggests that inflation will stay elevated throughout the rest of this decade. So, you know, with that, Danny, I want to hear your thoughts before we close your closing thoughts before we close on out here today. 
I think, uh, yeah, I think what we covered today is going to be really helpful for the aviation businesses and also individuals um, uh, working in aviation or also outside that space. A lot of it, it's um, quite similar, but um, yeah, I'm just glad uh, that uh, we covered most of this. I'm looking forward to hear from people. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, real income? What are your thoughts on a traditional definition of inflation? And uh, yeah, just uh, reach out, uh, tell us by the comments um, and also on any other platform that you may find this post on. Thank you, Danny. And as always, folks, we appreciate you jumping on with us and listening to us here. And please, as Daniel suggests and recommended, please give us your feedback. We are, we are still in the process of learning how to create, publish, and run a podcast. And we want to hear your feedback in terms of how we're doing. All right. As usual, you can always get us on all the podcast streaming platforms. And as always, thank you for listening and talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye now. Bye.